Hello everyone and welcome to the Dispatch podcast, the podcast of Biopharma Dispatch. This is our first podcast in 2022. It is early February so it's uh, well into the year. But I'm delighted to be joined again by Felicity McNeil, BSM, who's the chair, founder and chair of Better Access Australia. And we're going to have a bit of a conversation today about two things and whatever else we choose to talk about. One is the National Medicines Policy Review, and the other one is the budget submission that Better Access Australia has made, uh, which I think is really interesting because it talks a lot about affordability and other issues. So, Felicity, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here to welcome back Parliament. <laughs> well, let's let's start, shall we, with a conversation about the National Medicines Policy Review. Uh, I think... <laughs> yeah. Is that what it is? <laughs> well, well, I suppose in the Soviet Union it would have been, but it's a it's a risible document, isn't it? It's a it's been a terrible process, and it's produced what a process like that would produce. Yeah, look, we haven't been backwards and coming forwards on this one, Paul. It's been a rushed process. We felt that consultation is tokenistic. And after all that time and effort, citing 156 submissions, 194 individual consultations, there's a randomness of words that have been picked up and replaced. And there is a decided lack of reflection of community access to a public health program in there. And I'm disappointed. Well, a cynic would suggest that the consultation process for the review has been held in complete isolation of the actual document redevelopment because it seems to me that virtually no stakeholder input, certainly that which is on the public record, has been included and the document now looks like a procurement policy. It seems obsessed with the process of procuring medicines and the word patient, the word patient, as someone did point out to me on Friday, (laughs) the word patient is mentioned once in this document. Well, that's an improvement, isn't it? Um, look, I agree with you, Paul. I think, you know, when we started on this journey, we talked about the National Preventive Health Strategy, which has a vision. Uh, valuing health before illness, living well for longer. We were told by the review committee there will be no vision statement. Heaven forbid a public health program have a vision uh, that has anything to do with patients. If anyone has read the document yet, and I know a lot of people are struggling with everything else that's going on, particularly in the patient communities, there's an aim there that's six lines long, one sentence, which once it's finished talking about cost and access and affordability and evaluation, finally mentions a consumer and the community. And that's just completely unacceptable. Yeah, I really, I really resent what looks like the Sovietisation of this document. It's just Orwell would be proud of it. And, and use of the word, the refusal to use the word patient, I, I'm a great believer in the use of the word people or consumer, particularly the word consumer, is about dehumanising the patient experience, standardising how all of us experience and interact with the health system when in fact it's actually a very individualised experience and it shouldn't be so hard to at least acknowledge, respect that in what is a national document, a, a, a national document covering what is a very important area of public health. Look, Paul, you've interviewed some wonderful people over the last few years, um, and in particular I reflect back on Nicole Cooper and the concept consumer employs choice. It assumes that I'm going to buy my dress, my couch, my new computer 
patient is someone that needs the help and support of the health system. That's when our social compact comes to the fore and says, we need to help you live better, live well, live longer. And that's about a patient. It's not about a consumer. Don't disenfranchise this as being about me purchasing a piece of makeup as opposed to a medicine. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, well, the term consumer has a legal meaning. It has a meaning in law. And it implies our interaction with the economy and an exchange of goods. And that's not what the patient experience is. And I, I don't understand our reticence to use the word patient and contemplate the individual's experience with the health system. But Better Access has written to Health Minister Greg Hunt. You've written to Shadow Minister Mark Butler with, with certain requests. Do you want to go through those for us? Yeah, look, thanks, Paul. You know, we've been saying for quite a while this is rushed. We were really disappointed when we found out that there were the people that knew and didn't know about the consultation process extensions. You had to be part of the cool kids to know that if you just asked, uh, you could have an extra two weeks. We're really disappointed at a two-week threshold for con- consultation based on the limited input that is reflected in this draft. We've asked Minister Hunt to sort of say, look, we appreciate you're trying to meet an election commitment and trying to get it done before um, you finish this term of parliament and great, well done. But the reality is here that in trying to rush this through, you're disenfranchising the people that you set it up to support and protect and ensure a a legacy going forward. We've also written to Mark Butler because it was actually Labor that instituted the call for a national medicines policy review during the previous election and they outlined a, a careful and considered process and we're asking for an extension in the time frame for consumers to at least be for mid-March. And we're also asking for the review team to be given more time. Because one of the things I think that we have to reflect on is there's only so much you can do if you're also the review team and you're being asked to rush through something in a matter of weeks. So we think if we're all going to be given some time to actually do this properly, they also should be given time to do it properly. That's why we've asked Mark Butler to say to commit to the fact that if this extension is granted, he would support that because it means extending it through the election period and into the next parliament and we don't know who will be in charge. I think we should contemplate the role of the advisory committee. Uh, They appear to have been put in difficult circumstances but there's really nothing stopping them insisting on certain processes and outcomes and ways of doing things and if they choose not to do that I, I, I think they also have to contemplate the consequences for this policy which is being done in a way that in no way mimics uh, its original development and it would be a real shame because it's not going to be franchised to have the support of stakeholders. Look, again, agree with you, Paul. As you know, as part of our submission to the review, we actually asked for this policy to be taken away from the division that runs the programs and be put into a division that actually runs policy. The problem we see here is that when we read that draft, it's all about the processes of the PBAC and the processes of uh, the Medical Services Advisory Committee and entrenching those in the policy. This needs to be pulled away and we need the review team to actually agree that it needs to be higher level. This isn't a high level policy. It's trying to codify almost what we see in the guidelines and principles and cost recovery around for these existing committees. We're also concerned that we're looking at something that is being done at such breakneck speed and then we're going to be locked down. There's a tokenistic reflection in there that, yes, we'll review this semi-regularly, but it's too late. You have to have policy done by policy and program done by program. Well, this is a process driving the policy. That was never the intention. It's obviously not a desirable outcome. And we just have to hope that 
some decision makers reflect on what's happening here and decide that it's not it's not the way to go and that the the, the longer term risk to stakeholder commitment to this policy is undermined by what they're doing. I think we also have to remember, and I think we talked about it last year, Paul, as part of our consultation engagement, we were told that there were separate pieces of information and recommendations going to the Minister for Health outside of the draft of the document. I have no idea what they are. I have no idea how they relate to the policy. I have no idea how they relate to the program administration. And that needs to be included in this document too. If there's something else going to the minister, everybody who put in those 194 people and 156 submissions need to know what's that second document. Yeah, well, a bit of transparency. Wouldn't that be be nice? Let's move on to your budget submission. It was a really interesting uh, submission that raised a raft of issues. Some of the things that you as an organisation have been prosecuting now for over a year, opiate dependence, the discrimination against those, those patients... Uh, newborn screening, which continues to be an, an, another policy farce. Issues to do with accessing medical specialists and framework for private health insurance. But the one I'm really interested in is the affordability of medicines. I think you've raised some really interesting issues. I wonder if you could describe to the audience exactly what it is that you're calling for. Thanks, Paul. Look, I think we've all got used to a PBS that has 300 million scripts on it and 100 million of those are fully paid for uh, under the general copay. What we're increasingly seeing is that the PBS treats you the same whether you earn $61,000 a year as a family or whether you earn half a million dollars a year as a family. It's a crude tool and increasingly there are people falling between that gap of 61000 and half a million dollars that are struggling to pay for their medicines. We have co-payments that are now $42.50. I listened to media talk last year about private health insurance and it was going up by 2.7% and the moral outrage that was expressed. No one paid any attention to the fact that on 1 January a family's co-payment for their medicine went up 2.9%. And yet that's equally about a day-to-day affordability of healthcare for your family. Yeah, it's a formal thing that happens every year. Of course, this year it came on the back of a, a legislative change that has a supply commitment, the cost of which will be significantly worn by patients. I think the lack of debate, or certainly the sector needs to reflect on its refusal to support parliamentary debate on on that change. Look, we were... We were really upset by that. I think upset's probably the best word for it, when no one wanted to talk about the affordability increase. That legislation is increasing the cost of medicines. 2,000 medicines will be more expensive after October this year. I guess our concern here is that the stats of the PBS always look good depending on how you you market them, and yet they actually aren't good. The reality is that 20% of the, the PBS is going up for people as of October. Over half the items on the PBS cost over the general co-payment. So if you need a medicine for a heart condition, for arthritis, for epilepsy, for multiple sclerosis, and it's one of those medicines, the cost of your medicines went up, another 20% of the PBS is costing between $20 and $42.50 for patients. In the end, that's a huge expense on a day-to-day basis for families. If you've got comorbidities in your family, which most families do these days, suddenly families are juggling huge numbers of medicines. But the safety net for a general patient doesn't kick in till $1,500. That's over 34 scripts. So your Christmas present from the government is now you can get your medicine for 680 What it's missing the fact of is that people are going into the pharmacy and they can't afford 160 bucks a month for four medicines, one for each member of their family. They're saying, which one do I go without? 
We're suggesting that if you put in an, a moderate, a mid-tier co-payment for families that earn under $136,000 a year and you make it $20, you suddenly make the affordability of your healthcare just that little bit easier. It's quite a blunt program at the moment with co-pays. A huge difference between the concessional and the general co-pay. There is discounting going on and that's great for patients who are lucky enough to be prescribed a medicine that is heavily genericised for which there is a lot of competition. But that doesn't apply to new medicines, which are presumably better medicines. And these might be for things like multiple sclerosis or chronic conditions that, that children experience. So there needs to be sort of a more progressive approach to copays. I mean, that's essentially what you're arguing. It is. And what we're, what we're arguing here is nothing new to what else happens in the social sector. We have family tax benefit A that cuts off, which is the threshold we're proposing as a starting point, because the government and the system works out that when you're trying to raise a family or when you've got multiple issues going on within your family, that the affordability of everything you have to do, your rent, your utilities, your car, your education, your food, that all starts to add up. And there are some things that you need a little bit of help with. That's what we're saying is that we need to actually not take away the rudimentary crude nature of the PBS, which is all or nothing. There needs to be all, nothing and something. You think about five or six years ago when the the government was proposing a $5 GP copay and they almost lost office. But the the PBS general copay will go up by $5 over the next three years or, there, or thereabouts because it's now going up at around $1.50 mm-hmm. a year. So it is rapidly approaching uh, $50. $50, which is a staggering amount. And as you say, if families have three or four scripts that they've got to contemplate filling every month, that's a, that's a significant burden. Fewer than, I think it's fewer than 1% of subsidised PBS scripts are actually under the general safety net. So virtually no one is qualifying for the safety net, even if they're aware of it. And if they do qualify for it, they qualify for it late in the year. So it seems to be an area that's just crying out for change. It really is. And that's what we're saying. The the $20 to $42.50 mark is quite considerable. There are a lot of families making the payment for that medicine yes so it's attracting some discounting but the reality is it's still over twenty dollars and like i said if you've got the average yearly earnings is around ninety one thousand so after tax you're looking at seventy thousand dollars you know i'm asking everyone listening today to think about what your monthly expenditure is on the basics your rent your mortgage your electricity your gas your car your school fees your food Think about all of those costs. Look at the fact that inflation is something that we're all contemplating right now and wage stagnation is something that we're all contemplating right now. And then think about how it is you make a choice about what do you afford. And we know that families are choosing not to fill some of their scripts. So is it, I give you your diabetes medication, but I miss out on my blood pressure medication? These are tough choices that we just think it should, shouldn't be happening. Yeah, well, it's a public health program in the end. And so... A reliance on discount, as I say, the discounting that has emerged in recent years is great, but it's basically made, for general patients, it's made the PBS into a high-cost drugs program. So you only attract subsidy at higher-cost drugs, but you're still having to fork out very significant co-pays. That's a significant, a significant burden. And you would hope that it's, 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 there's some consideration to it, but I, I didn't see too much consideration to it in the revised National Medicines Policy document, I have to say. No, accessibility in respect of time to access and affordability of access for anyone other than the government seems to be sadly lacking right now. It's all about spending constraints for the government. 
Yeah, for the government. And so if the government wants to think about its spending constraints, let's think about what happens when you don't treat for health and you only treat for illness. That's what the government's preventive health strategy was all about. We need to treat and prevent chronic disease. We need to make sure that people don't have acute episodes and deteriorate because of poor management of chronic disease. That's what we've been telling people for years, for decades. And so suddenly we've got this affordability issue and we need to address it. I don't really understand what the problem is, Felicity, because Greg Hunt has consistently said in recent months that he's got $5 billion for the PBS and new spending for the PBS. Any rudimentary calculation breaks that out to a billion dollars a year, $80 million a month, $20 million a week. So when people say that we can't afford everything on the PBS, that's simply not true. We can afford everything and we can have money left over to fix this copay issue. I completely agree. And I think it's one of the things that always worries me about the monthly announcements when we hear, you know, without subsidy, this would cost a patient $250,000 a year or without subsidy, this would cost a patient $12,000 a year. I want to remind every politician right now that it doesn't matter whether it's $12,000 or with all my copays, it's $1,500. If I don't have the money on a weekly basis, I still can't afford that medicine and that's what we have to remember. Let's all pat ourselves on the back when we list an, a new eczema treatment or a new cancer treatment. But remind yourself that that medicine is going to cost $42.50 for a family earning only $61,100 a year. Before tax. So think about it. Yeah, so let's. we, we do need to think about those issues and we need to think about those issues in the context of revised national medicines policy. That That is incredibly depressing document and uh, an upcoming budget, a pre-election budget. So both these major, all the major parties, all the political parties have an opportunity to make some commitments here. And I hope they do. Felicity, thank you for joining us today. The first podcast of 2022 it is. Uh, congratulations on the budget submission. Congratulations on your letters, your response to the National Medicines Policy Review too. I saw Medicines Australia came out unusually hard for them, I thought. So that was quite impressive. I think a lot of their members are incredibly frustrated with it because in the end, it was a commitment to them. Yes. And they were let down pretty quickly after the, after the last election. So kudos to them for coming out pretty hard. And we've just got to hope that, that people listen. Yes. Well, not just people listen, but politicians listen. <laughs> yeah, those people, people too. Thanks, Felicity. Thanks.